You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. The light of Jesus is the love of God. God loves me. The love of God always goes first. These are the three things I want you to remember when you walk out the doors tonight after this Christmas Eve service and to resonate in your heart and your mind tomorrow morning. The light of Jesus is the love of God. God loves me. The love of God always goes first. It's debated which travels first, good news or bad news. Um, Most people think bad news. Um, Sociologists refer to this as the negativity bias, which means we have a tendency to give more weight to bad news, and as a result, we feel more inclined to share bad news than we do good news. I read one reporting agency describe news not as the thousands of planes that will land um, uh, this hour or this day or over the course of this year, um, but the one that crashes, that is news. I think I might have negativity bias because when I read the reviews of a product I want, I don't start with the 500 five-star reviews. (laughs) Neither do you. You... You go to the five one-star reviews to see that, you know, what you might be missing. Um, the reigning leadership advice is to give, in giving criticism or bad news, is to balance it with five positive comments. Another way to look at that observation is that bad news is five times as weighty as good news And I don't know how much bad news that you have had to absorb this year. I don't know how much bad news you've had to absorb in your lifetime. But the good news message of Christmas is that the light of Jesus is the love of God. That God loves you. And with God, with the love of God, he always goes first. The first four books in the New Testament are called the Gospels. The word gospel means good news. Um, Matthew and Luke are the Gospels that give us the details around the birth of Jesus. Um, I, I joked in the first Christmas Eve service that when someone lets me know that a child has been born in the congregation, I will tell Gina, Carrie was born... And uh, she'll say, well, what time? And then she'll say, boy or girl, is the mom okay? How much did she weigh? And I'll ask, I'll just answer, Carrie was born, <laughs> right? For, for, for men, we kind of end at that spot, right? Um, and my wife wants to know more details. Apparently, Matthew and Luke are writing to women, I want to give us more details around the birth of Jesus. And I I love reading those and I encourage you to do that every Christmas. Mark begins his gospel writing about when Jesus starts his, what's known as his public or his um, uh, 
yeah, public ministry. Uh, it begins with his baptism. Mark seems to say, he's here, let's move on. Um, John, I think John's motivation is uniquely different. John wants, to, wants us to know that although this was the birth of Jesus, he was here a long time ago. Because John's language is he, in, his, in his gospel begins with tying us into Genesis language of in the beginning. So here's how John begins his gospel. So if the gospels, which means good news, are all about the person of Jesus, then this means that Jesus is good news. So John begins this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that light was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Yes, he's come, but he's always been here. Genesis 1, 1 through 5 reads this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. You can read a lot in scripture about empty and darkness and so much so that it might come across as a theme of scripture, and yet I would propose it's not a theme of scripture, it's a backdrop of scripture. That what God does and what he does best, he does with the backdrop of empty and dark. I would think these first actions of God are indicative of all his actions. So they're great actions for us to latch onto. Here, are, here they are. It's one is that the first is that God precedes anything that's empty and dark. He precedes it. The second is that God is present in empty and dark. He's not absent. And that God fills empty and dark with light and life. It's a backdrop. It is a setting for him to do his best work. And John recognizes that that the world first began kind of in that kind of exciting nature. It was a very bright beginning. And yet something happened. Even in his day, he recognized the darkness that was upon the people and culture. And so in that, he starts telling us the story of where light is going to come from again. Why the need for a relight? 
Why the need for a relight? So in Genesis, you don't have to take much reading past what I read there. We find that God loved his creation so much that he gave his creation a choice. See, love is not love without a choice. So he builds in a choice. Here are the ways in which I want you to care for the garden. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to walk this out. But there's another path and they chose that path. Their choice was a demonstration of God's love. And when, when that choice is made, then what, what, what kind of happens out of that we see in human relationships. A human relationship is dependent on trust. Intimacy happens on a basis of trust. Where there is no trust, there is no intimacy. When trust is broken, intimacy is broken, all right? And so here's what happens. Adam and Eve make their choice. Their choice then causes them to recognize that they are naked and ashamed and they hide from God. Now, God had made a pattern that in the evenings he would come and he would be and discuss and have conversations with Adam and Eve. And scripture doesn't tell us one thing about what they talked about, but I, I can just imagine what kind of great conversations they had to have been when Adam and Eve are learning new things every day. They're seeing new things every day. They're discovering new things every day. What great conversation, something that you would not have wanted to miss. And yet now they're hiding. Now here's an interesting thing. When God comes and he comes into the garden on that particular day, we hear him say, Adam, where are you? Again, we have to build some conjecture in here that I would think that maybe, maybe God came into the same place of the garden every single day. And every single day, Adam and Eve are waiting for him to get there, right? Excited, he's coming. We get a chance to talk again. This is great. And God shows up, no Adam. Adam, where are you? Now it turns into, you would think, a game of hide and seek. And yet... Adam hears God's voice. Here's another amazing thing about God. He knows where we're hiding. And he wants us to be found. See, he knows where we are. He wants us to be found at such a great measure that he'll come within earshot of us to say, where are you? Where are you? And Adam hears his voice and the trust rushes back in and even though now they are, they are full capacity of knowing what has been broken, they raise their hand, see it coming out of a bush. God, I'm, we're over here. We're over here. This, in, in normal human relationships, if I offend Kyle, in order to restore our relationship, I have to then, the offending party, I have to go to the person I'm offended and I have to say, will you forgive me? And then if it's going to be healed, then Kyle then has to receive my apology, my repentance, and now the relationship is healed. All human relationships work this way. The, the healing begins with the with the offended or the offensive party stepping forward. And yet that is not what happens 
in Genesis. This is not God's pattern of healing relationships with him. He goes first. He was the offended party. And yet he comes in the garden and says, Adam, Adam, where are you? He takes a different path. His love always goes first. He had complete knowledge of where they were hiding. That is a powerful revelation to take a hold of today. God's love for us compels him to come close enough so we can hear his voice even when we're in hiding. God's loving presence initiates his redemption plan and it's Adam's response that activates the redemption plan. In fact, God's plan for redeeming mankind begins well before he says, Adam, where are you? Because we read in one of the passages in the last place book of the Bible, in the back half of a particular verse, it almost seems like it's a throwaway line and yet it tells such a big story. It says, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So here in the end of the story that we get, we learn that in the very beginning, he had already made provision for someone that wasn't going to trust him. Someone who was going to make a choice that was different than him. And he goes at the very beginning before we get to empty and dark from the foundation of the world. God's love always goes first. And the two questions of redemption that everyone has to answer from that time on. One, am I aware that I'm naked, empty, and hiding from God? Am I aware that I am naked and empty and hiding from God? Question two, will I trust God enough to come out of hiding? Will I trust God enough to come out of hiding? Do I trust him enough to raise my hand and say, hey, God, I'm over here. I think we can all relate to the fear of Adam and Eve and feel the necessity, maybe at sometimes, maybe, maybe now, to hide from God. We hide in our relationships. What will people think of me if they know everything there is to know about me? In, a, in, in a certain vernacular, we'd say, what if they knew where all the bodies were buried? What would they think about me? Those are the things that cause us to want to hide. We only will expose ourselves if we're 100% sure that that person can be trusted. And so John's good news account of Jesus coming is intended to teach us that trust in who he is. Here are the ways that John describes Jesus in that passage I just read to you. First, he describes him, describes him as life and light. All right, verse four said, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light of Jesus is the love of God. The world around us always overpromises and underdelivers. Always. Always. God's promises always over-deliver. It's interesting that we sell his promises short. How could that promise ever fulfill me? And yet he always over-delivers. And when Jesus comes in the flesh, this one singular fulfilled promise, scripture says that all of the promises of God are fulfilled in that promise. Every one of those promises John describes Jesus as overcoming light. 
He says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Light is fast. Light travels at 671 million miles per hour. We are approximately 93 million miles away from the sun and yet, and yet it only takes eight minutes and 20 seconds from one ray of sunshine to hit our face in the morning. Light is amazing. It is overcoming. I don't care how dark a room is, you light one light and darkness goes away. Darkness cannot overcome as simple as a lit candle. Darkness cannot snuff that candle out. And I know that darkness has a weight to it. But that weight cannot snuff out the candle or the candle of Christ. In general, babies light up rooms, right? And the birth of Jesus lit up a world. John describes Jesus as light for everyone. He says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The light and life of Jesus is for everyone. It is exclusive to Jesus. The, the life that brings fulfillment is exclusive in Jesus. And yet Jesus is not exclusionary. He came for everyone. His love goes first, always. John describes Jesus as tangible, as touchable, in close residence. Verse 14 is the money verse. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He settled in among us. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is God in the flesh. This is the incarnation. The message translation or version of the scripture says that Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That tangible, that concrete, Jesus isn't a concept. He is a reality. Jesus isn't found by following a religion. He is found in relationships, surrendering our, surrendering our life to him. Contrary to public opinion, Christianity isn't for rule followers. It's for Jesus followers. God sent Jesus so we could know God. God sent Jesus to redeem us back into relationship. Jesus is more than Christianity's leading prophet or teacher. Jesus is our redemptive savior. And then he ends this way. John describes Jesus as full of grace and truth. It's not the only time it says that in scripture. And I can't think of two things we are in more desperate need of than grace and truth. Grace. I don't have, I don't have my act together. God comes with grace. You know, giving someone a second chance is irrelevant if the person is the same. When I take a mulligan in golf, it's the same guy swinging. No one has magically transformed my swing into a work of art. So what God offers us in Christ is not just another chance. He offers transformation and power and can transform anything that we give him. So it's more a fresh start than is ever a second chance. And when we talk about truth, at no time in history, in your living history, has truth been so malleable than right now. 
Everybody's always had their own truth. It's just now we accept it as true. But he comes full of truth. This is why. When we need, when you need truth in a situation, James, the brother of Jesus, says that we can come to him and ask and he will give it without finding fault. I consider it the second lowest fruit hanging in all of scripture next to salvation. I come to Christ. He does the heavy lifting. I come and ask for wisdom, for truth, and he gives it. He is the wonderful counselor. No one tops his counsel. He's come full of grace and truth. This is the person Jesus describes. This is the person that each of us, if you are in a relationship with Christ, at some point in time, you said, I'm over here. You can find me over here. And John doesn't waste much time in letting his readers know the motivation God had for sending Jesus. In fact, you just really depending on how your Bible gets laid out, it may be just a one-page turn flip. In John chapter three, a religious leader who would have, known, would have known the Jewish scriptures inside and out to the point that he would have had the Torah memorized. He comes and he's been fascinated by this new prophet. There's a way about this man that has just caught his attention He knew the scripture. He would have followed the scripture to the letter. And yet his questions for Jesus are around, how can I enter the kingdom of God? Now you would think he's Israel's teacher. This is something he should have known. He has kept all of the rules. And yet there's something nagging inside of Nicodemus that says, I'm still missing something. And I think this man has it. He doesn't come to Jesus during the daytime. He comes to Jesus at night. He doesn't want anybody to know what he is feeling and doesn't want anyone to know who he's asking for with help. Jesus doesn't say, no, you need to come back at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. He meets him at night in the darkness and he answers that prevailing question. How, how, Do I enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus gives him an answer that his intellectual mind cannot rationalize. Jesus says, you must be born again. And he is wrapped, Nicodemus is wrapped around the axle. Born again. This this doesn't even conceptually make any sense. How can a grown man re-enter a mother's womb? And then is where Jesus lets us all in on the motivation for why he would come in the flesh, why God would send his one and only. Notice the emphasis each time you read that, his one and only. Here comes now God's motivation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Love was God's motivation in giving. The life and light of Jesus is the love of God. Whether you have experienced Christ or not, the fact that he came is a demonstration of God's love for you and God's love for me. God does not operate out of a negativity bias. 
he operates out of a love bias because he says, whoever, whoever, whoever believes in me. And then God's giving, boy, this is one of the best parts. God's giving comes before our believing. Okay, notice, for God so loved the world that he gave. So whoever believes, with God giving comes before believing. At Gateway, we like to say that you can belong before you believe. That being in the middle of us, wanting to be there, that's good enough. And believing will come in phases over time. That concept comes from that verse. God, in the beginning, before the beginning, makes provision for all of us. And he gave first. So, what are the three things? The light of Christ is the love of God. Two, God loves you. God loves me. The third, with God, his love always goes first. Always. So when we come down to the end of a Christmas Eve service, the best questions that I can ask you is, are you hiding? Are you hiding? We hide all along this journey. It's not just the first time that we're lost and we find Christ. There's a bunch of times in our life we decide to hide one reason or the other. My prayer coming into Christmas Eve is that you would hear his voice saying, where are you? Where are you? And to try in my best, I'm not a songwriter. It took me a lot longer to do it. To say you can trust him. You can trust him to say, here I am. I'm over here. The ushers will come. They're going to light their candles out of the center candle, the light candle, the Christ candle. If you'll go ahead and stand and get your candle ready, they're going to walk down the center aisle and they're going to light the candle of the people on the end and you're going to pass that light down. You notice your kids have um, uh, a flashlight, if you will, candle. That was liability insurance. Remember I said that when you light a candle, it always changes something. So let me encourage you. Christ has done the heavy lifting. He's come. And if you find yourself in a place of hiding, when, when, you, when you light that candle from the person next to you, if you're at the end, all you have to do is say, here I am, here I am I, Lord. Here I am. And watch and experience what's only possible by the transforming power of Christ. So, Father, we thank you for this this celebration of Advent as we have come to its conclusion. We still look for your return. We're grateful that you came. We're grateful that you're here. Would you light up our lives today? the beginning of this new year. In the name of Jesus, I pray.
Amen. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.